Holy Spirit, we come asking you to illumine our minds and our hearts. Open them up that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. If you were to be asked the question, what is the most dominant theme of the Bible? What would come to your mind? What is, the mo- what is the primary theme of the scriptures? You could give a lot of answers that I think many could be considered correct. One of my seminary professors, David Fitch, he would argue that the dominant theme of the Bible is presence. The presence of God. Isn't that interesting? See, I believe the Bible describes the story of humanity as a journey away from the presence of God and then how to find our way back to his presence again. And the Bible tells us that the cross is the bridge. You've seen that bridge illustration, that, that we cross over through the cross to get back to God. And I want to ask, but why? Can't God just reunite us without the cross? Can't God just wave his hand and say, you're forgiven, it's done, you're redeemed? Why the cross? Couldn't he have done it by some other means? What does Jesus' death have to do with our relationship, our reconciliation with God? This morning we're continuing part three of our sermon series, The Cross of Christ. And I want to show you how the cross of Christ restores our relationship with God, reconnects us with the presence of God. The cross does make all the difference. And today I'm going to address two of, I think, the hardest things to understand about the cross, and probably two of the most easily misunderstood things about the cross in the church and in our world. And they're often avoided uh, because they're difficult, uh, but we're going to address them today. And I believe you're going to want to pay attention today because it's, it's, there's going to be some, some teaching. It's going to be a little heady. It's going to be a little different today. And you might want to take some notes because you're going you to be able to follow along with what I'm saying. And I'd ask you to follow along in your Bibles as well. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. The passage you're turning to has had a lot of claims made about it, you know, being the most important passage in Romans. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther, he said, this is the chief point in the very central place of the epistle or the letter. He says it's the center or the chief point of the whole Bible. It's a pretty, pretty drastic claim. Now, whether Martin Luther is right or not, whether it's, he's exaggerating a little bit, we can maybe debate him. But clearly, this is an important text. In the scriptures. And there's a lot to unpack, and I can only scratch the surface. So I want to give you a little context here. Paul is writing to the church in Rome that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. Jews, the chosen covenant people of God, and Gentiles, the rest of the world. And through this letter, he is trying to bring unity to the two groups, to, bring their, to help them see their oneness in Christ. And so he starts his argument with them very curiously by talking about the wrath of God. God's anger against sin. He says in Romans 1.18, you can flip back a couple chapters if you'd like to see. He says in verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Then he says, then he lists all these evil things that people do. Uh, greed, depravity, uh, envy, murder, strife, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, and they root for the White Sox. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable, these people. 
But then Paul basically goes on to say, Jew and Gentile are both guilty before God. God doesn't have any favorites with people. Just because the Jews were God's chosen people, that God used, used them to bring his light to the world, does not give them any special advantage with the Creator. The law doesn't make them any better. So he continues his argument in Romans 3, verses 9 through 10. He says, We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament, There is no one righteous, not even one. So Paul is quoting the law. He's quoting the Old Testament here. And he's saying the law says that no one is righteous. That's what the law says. That's what the Old Testament says. And this is where we get to the passage that we started, that we're going to dive into this morning. Verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Okay, so what he's saying is, if the law says this, it says those who are ob- who, to those who are obligated to obey it, i.e. the Jews. So he's saying that the law says no one is righteous. Therefore, the Jews, you are not righteous either. No one is righteous. It applies to you too. So Jew and Gentile alike are all held accountable before God. That's what he says. Every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. There's no one righteous before God. Well, about one biblical scholar, Cranfield, he says, this evokes the picture of a defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of the evidence that has been brought against him. I mean, it's like a, you're a defendant in court and, the, and, and you're just hearing, you're the man, you're the woman. We caught you there. We caught you there. We caught you there. And your opportunity is to speak and you can't say anything. That's what the law does. That's what the law does. It shows us how fall or how far that we fall from God's standard. It shows us that we are utterly defenseless when we come before the throne of God. Even just the most important commandments, Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and make sure you love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't that, even those two, show us how utterly we fail in just those two areas? We are defenseless. The law will not Save people. The law does not save. Look at verse 21. But now. Two glorious words. But now. But now something new has happened. A new opportunity before you. A new path has opened up when you thought there was no way. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So Paul is saying, apart from the law, there's a new basis for salvation. But isn't that interesting? He says, actually, the law and the prophets testify to it. So there's, there's this continuity and there's this discontinuity. Yes, it's apart from the law. It's apart from the old covenant. But the old covenant, the law and prophets, they're witnessing to it. They're testifying to it. And now you're going to see the purpose of it, the climax of the story that God has been telling. It's finally here. And Paul continues, verses 21-22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul's saying, we are made right with God through what happened with Jesus' death and resurrection, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Well, we want to ask, how? What does the cross have to do with this? 
as I said at the beginning. What does the cross have to do with us being saved? And here's the, f- the first point that I want to give you. This is why it makes a difference. Number one, Jesus' sacrifice removes our sin. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross removes our sin. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, when the word says sacrifice here, I think we often think of, you know, like soldiers or people who, who sacrifice their lives, the, you know, they put their lives on the line kind of thing. And certainly that's true, to, you know, true about Jesus as well, but that's really not the idea here. The idea is an Old Testament sacrifice, a theological sacrifice. It's something different. It has a different meaning. And uh, what's going to help us here is the, the word that Paul uses for atonement. It's the Greek word hilasterion. And this is the word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat, the top covering of the Ark of the Covenant. And some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> what in the world are you talking What does that even mean? All right, I want to dive into it. I, want, I really want you to understand what is going on here. Okay, so let me give you some context again. The story of the Bible is the story of humanity's journey away from the presence of God and how God is going to get them back again. And it starts off in the garden where human beings, they're fully in the presence of God. There's no barrier between them and God. They're with God. And they choose to sin and disobey Him. So what does God do? He casts them out of His presence because a holy and just God does not dwell with sin. And so they have to leave the garden. But then he begins his plan to redeem the people. He chooses Abraham and his, and his descendants, the Israelites. They fall into slavery, and he redeems them out of slavery in Egypt so that they can come and worship him. And now he must find a way to deal with the sin in the community so that he can dwell with the people because that is his goal. He wants his, his presence to be with the people. So at the very end of Exodus, the, the end of the story is not that they're, that they're out of slavery and they're fine. No, it ends with all these weird instructions about how to build a tabernacle. It's like 20 chapters on how to build the tabernacle and make sacrifices and do all of these things. For what? For God's presence to be able to dwell with the people. Sin had to be removed. It had to be dealt with if God was going to be with his people. God was making a way for himself to be among them despite their sin. And so he gives instructions on the tabernacle, which would house the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God's presence would dwell. Let me give you, let me give you a few pictures here. Maybe help with this. Okay, so this is a, a model, a picture of what the, the tabernacle you know, might have looked like. It had a tent around the outside. They would enter through, and they would make sacrifices on the altar uh, to remove sin. And then in that kind of tent area, the, another enclosed tent is the, is the holy place where the priests would go. And then inside that, there's an even another more holy place called the Holy of Holies. So let me, let me give you a diagram of this. So they come to the entrance, there's the altar where the sacrifices were made, and notice it's kind of removed from the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence was most powerfully and particularly dwelt. And then the priest could enter the most holy place, and then behind that there was another curtain, or in that there was another curtain, you see that line that's barring off the Holy of Holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was. And this Ark might have looked like that. It stored the, the covenant that God made with, God, with His people, uh, the Ten Commandments, and it was said that there's these two angels on the top called cherubim, and they would, God's presence would dwell between those angels above the mercy seat, above the atonement cover. And this is where God's presence would be with his people. 
in a very particular way. Now let me read to you what the instructions that God gave about this. Exodus 25. Remember we're in the story of the tabernacle. And he says, Make an atonement cover of pure gold. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in it the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that, that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all the commands for the Israelites. You see, the atonement cover, the mercy seat, this would be the place where God would meet with his people, where he would speak to them, where he would give them commands, where he would, he would be with his people. And uh, this is the place where God would meet with his people because this is the place where atonement for sin would be made. That's why God is meeting with the people there, because that is where atonement for sin would be made. Now, you have to understand that the Israelites had all of these different uh, kind of worship days throughout the year. One very important day was called the Day of Atonement. And it was once a year. And on that day, uh, they would make all these sacrifices to cleanse all the people from their sin and to cleanse the tabernacle from the sin and the impurities in the tabernacle so that God's presence could keep dwelling among the people despite the sin of the people. And so God gave all of these instructions. You, you know, you can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And if you didn't go in the way that God prescribed, literally the high priest could die. I mean, I think we forget who we're talking about here. The Creator, the Holy God who made everything. And we might die if we go into his presence in a way that he has not prescribed. It was not just this flippant thing. No, there were rules in place, things that had to be done. And so God gives instructions in Leviticus for the Day of Atonement. Look what he says. God says this. He says, The high priest shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So in other words, the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled on the mercy seat, the atonement cover, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And then in verse 30, it goes on to say, On this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. So this is how, maybe one way to understand atonement. I believe atonement cleanses you from your sins so that you can be at a place of at-one-ment with God. All right, see how the word atonement makes the, the terms at-one-ment? We become at-one with God. We come back into God's presence through the cleansing of sin. Because when we sin, we become unclean before God and that sin must be washed away if we're going to be in his presence. It must be atoned, must be removed. So how is sin washed away? How is sin removed? How is sin atoned? Well, the Bible says it's through the blood of a sacrifice. Why is that the case? Why does that do that? And there really is only, you know, there's multiple verses, but there's about one verse that's probably the most specific in the Bible, and it will help us the most, I think. And it's Leviticus 17.11. And it says, this is God again speaking, and he says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So let me try to frame how I understand what's going on here. 
So God is saying, you know, blood is the symbol of life. Uh, if you lose, if an animal versus human loses your blood, you die. It's that blood is the life. And God is the author of life. Sin cuts us off from the presence of God. And because of that, it begins the process of death within us. What did God say if you, to the, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden? If you sin, if you disobey, you will surely die. Sin cuts us off from the presence of God in his life. And it begins the process of death. So in order to redeem us and save us, God appoints the lifeblood of another to be shed in our place so that the death-producing sin can be overcome through the life of another. That's what's going on here. Another's life overcomes the death-producing sin in our lives so that it can be cleansed and washed away and we can be redeemed. Now, unfortunately, animals and humans are not in even exchange. It's not, it's not the same. It's not life for life. So the Israelites, they have to do all these sacrifices all the time. And the Day of Atonement, they have to do it every year so that God's presence can dwell with the people. But now, but now, God has put Jesus forth as a sacrifice of atonement that through the shedding of his blood, all of our sins can be atoned for, can be washed, that we can be made clean. And now, because of that, God can dwell with us. He can be in us. And we can meet with him and we can hear him speak just like he did at the, the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Praise be to God. You see, as the temple was cleansed, and made holy for God's presence to, d- to dwell, so we are cleansed by Christ's shed blood that his Holy Spirit might dwell in us. That is why we're called the temple of the living God. Doesn't that now make sense? We are cleansed so that God's presence can always be with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us because sin has been removed through the cross. Praise be to God. So the first one, Jesus' sacrifice removes sins. The second is this. Jesus' sacrifice rescues us from wrath. Great. Another light and easy topic for you. You see, the removal of sin rescues us from the wrath of God. Now this word, the Greek word for atonement, hilasterion, it also refers, had another meaning uh, in the Greek, and it referred to the, the appeasement of the gods, that their wrath would be removed, regaining their favor. Now, I cannot simply address everything about this topic. I can't give you a systematic theology on the doctrine of the wrath of God today. Uh, But simply put, God's wrath is his anger and his response to human sin and rebellion. And at the outset of this topic, I really want to get this cleared up because we so misunderstand this, and I think we're we're afraid to talk about this because it's so easily misunderstood. Uh, the The first thing you need to know is the cross does not change God's mind about you. It does not change God's mind about you. He loved you before the cross. He demonstrated his love to you on the cross, and he still loves you now. It's not the fact that God was somehow mad at us in his wrath, and now Christ comes, and he, he's, done, he's done with that anger, and now he loves us again. That, that is not the Christian story. No, you have to get that out of your mind. God is always loving us. And furthermore, we often mistakenly, mistakenly imagine That wrath, maybe for some of us, we think wrath is like God's default mode. He's just angry at people. And that's just not the case. Wrath is not at the core of who God is. You see, 
God, uh, wrath is God's response to sin. It's His anger at sin. So when there is no sin, there is no wrath in God. When, when God was in the garden with Adam and Eve, there was no wrath in God. And there will be no wrath in God when there, we are in the new heavens and the new earth. D.A. Carson, the biblical scholar from Trinity, he says, Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be love in God forever and ever. Amen. We must get it out of our mind also that God was somehow angry in, in the Old Testament and now he's nice in the New. That the Father was angry in the Old Testament and now Jesus is the nice version of God. That is also completely false. God has always been angry at sin in both Testaments. Jesus was angry at sin in his ministry. God, God is not pleased with sin in either old or new. And God is loving in both Testaments, old and new. And we must never separate the Father and the Son and the Spirit of one God. So it's not that the Father is angry and the Son and the Son is nice. No, the Father and Son and Spirit all love humanity and want to redeem humanity. And all are opposed to sin. All that, the, all that uh, destroys humanity, God is opposed to. There is no division in the Trinity. There is no division in the Trinity. And we must remember that. So what's the deal with wrath? What's the deal with the wrath of God? Like I said, I can't give you a systematic theology here. Uh, but in Romans, I believe, primarily when Paul is talking about wrath, he is almost always referring to God's end-of-time judgment against sin. That at the end of the world, at the end of history, at the end of it all, God is going to judge the world with total fairness, with total justice, and every wrong, everything will be accounted for, and everyone will be held accountable for all that they have done. Romans 2.5, earlier Paul said this. He says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a coming day that God is, in his grace, not dealing with us now as our sins deserve, but inviting everyone everywhere to repent and trust in his Son. But there will come a day when God will judge the world, and that's called the wrath of God how he is opposed to all sin. You see, God will not just sweep sin under the rug and not deal with it. That's why we need the cross. And I believe this is, we should feel that this is just and right for God to do this. You know, I think we, may, we might think, well, God is unjust for somehow judging the world. That, that can't be the case. I mean, aren't many of you, aren't some of you at least angry at the injustices you see in our world? Doesn't it disturb you when you hear about mass killings, doesn't it disturb you when you hear about physical and sexual abuse? Doesn't it disturb your spirit when you hear about drug lords who employ child soldiers? Doesn't it disturb your heart when you hear about racism and segregation and the awful injustices in our world? When you read about the Holocaust, all of these things. I mean, even us sinful humans, we don't feel right about injustice in the world. In fact, it disturbs us. There's something that is fundamentally wrong about all that is in our world. If we feel that way, how much more so the creator of the world who longs to see it whole and new? How much more so is he, does he feel it's so wrong when other humans oppress and enslave and abuse other people? God is not just going to sweep that under the rug. That would be unjust. 
No, he must deal with it. And I think we have the problem with this doctrine because we take sin so lightly. Well, we shouldn't just fret about it all that much. But we don't realize who we are sinning against. Our creator God. And the scriptures teach us that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give account for all the things that we have done. But here's the good news. Romans 5, 9 through 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more so shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we are God's enemies, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Because Jesus' blood washes over all our sin, it makes us right with God. And the verdict that you're going to face at the end of all things, we already know the verdict now. It becomes true in the present that God will declare us right, that God will declare us innocent in Christ because his blood has washed over us and atoned all our sin. So Paul can say in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear of the wrath of God, of the judgment of God, because God has made us right himself. And if you don't understand Paul, perhaps Jesus will help you here. John 3, 36. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. I mean, Jesus talks about this. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Jesus says if we, if we disobey the Son, if we don't trust in the Son, we will not see life. We will face the judgment of God without the salvation, without the redemption that we have in Christ. And this will be a literal hell, a separation from God, facing the judgment, facing what all, of that, all that is in God that is opposed to sin, we would be facing that without Christ and his redemption. But through Christ, we've been given grace and eternal life. So God removes our sin to be with us, and now he rescues us from the judgment that is coming so that, we, so that he can be with us forever. Again, there's presence, eternal life. Last thing I want to say, this will be brief. Jesus' sacrifice reconciles us to God through faith. So God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So in recap, the sacrifice that Jesus made accomplishes two things. It removes our sin and it rescues us from the wrath and judgment of God. Because it totally removes us and makes us right with him. And this results in our reconciliation with God, that we're reunited to him. There's no more barrier between us and God. We were once far away. We were once lost in darkness. We were guilty with sin, without hope. But now, God has made us right. God has redeemed us. God has brought us back through the cross. And he did this freely out of his grace. Not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. God has never changed his mind about you. He knew what he was getting into when he called you. He knew what he was getting when he saved you. He knew how much you would mess up when, when you called his name. God hasn't changed his mind about you. He loves you. He's seen all the mistakes you've done. He's seen all the ways we've messed it up, all the, all the sin that we've done. And not an ounce of God has changed his mind about you. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. He wants you in his loving arms, his presence. And our response to that is to have faith. To have faith, not just to believe, but to trust. To give our lives, to give our trust in Christ. It's easy as ABC. 
We admit our sin, that we need the sacrifice of Jesus to cover our sin. We must believe and trust in Christ for salvation. And we must see, commit. We must commit our lives to Jesus Christ, to follow him as our Lord and Savior. Admit, believe, commit. The ABCs of coming to Christ. If that's something you'd like to do this morning, I'd love to talk to you about that. How you might be able to experience that and to experience this presence with God. For those of you who've been followers of Christ for a long time, may, may you be renewed by this story. May it not grow old for you. May, it be re- may you be renewed at the joy of your salvation. And may your mouth be open to spread the news. That our mouths are stopped. John Stott says our mouths are closed before the judgment seat of Christ. Let our mouths be open and telling that there is a Savior who can save people from their sins. Please pray with me this morning. Oh God, we thank you that because of your Son, we don't have to tremble in fear in your presence but we can come boldly to the throne of your mercy to receive grace we thank you for the sacrifice that you made through Jesus on the cross we thank you that all our sins can be removed Lord that as far as the east is from the west you've removed them we thank you for that God forgive us for the times that we take the cross for granted that we think that maybe we don't need it or that we're going to sweep this, our sin under the rug. But Lord, we come today admitting our need. We need you. We need the cross. We need your forgiveness. We have sinned. We are guilty before your throne. But oh God, we believe. We believe in the grace that has come to us in Christ. We believe in your Son. We believe that He is the Son of God. We trust in Him for salvation. We trust in Him for our justification. We trust in Christ alone. And God, we commit. We commit our lives to You. To be in relationship to You. To follow You wherever You may lead. And Lord, we commit to doing what You've asked. To open our mouths. To spread the Gospel. To share Christ with others. Lord, we commit to do all that You've asked us to do. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your love. And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.